we spoke yesterday about how the Buddha's awakening was not so much a glimpse of some absolute truth, but rather a shift of perspective from an attachment, a preoccupation with what he calls alaya, a place, whether that be his own ego identity, whether it be his role in society, whether it be his belief system, and a movement towards an opening to what he calls the ground. And the ground, as I mentioned, although I didn't finish that yesterday, the ground is of two aspects. First, there's the ground of conditioned arising, dependent origination, or we might simply say contingency, that this conditions that, conditioned arising, the flow of events, the processes of causality and conditions and relations, endlessly shifting, changing, assuming new, new forms, vanishing, disappearing, reappearing. And it's rather curious in a way that he would give this the name ground. After all, when we use a word like ground, we tend to think of something rather more stable. And this is again strangely paradoxical. He's moved from a place which is more conventionally what we would understand as a basis or a ground for our existence and our identity, and talks of having found, having awoken to the ground. And yet when we look at how he describes this ground, it's not really very much like a ground at all. Something that's constantly in motion something that's constantly appearing only to disappear. What kind of ground is that? And when he talks of the uh, practice of attention or mindfulness or awareness, which is also spoken of as a grounding, again, he doesn't seek something permanent or fixed to pay attention to, but rather he attends or he encourages his, his listeners to attend to something very unground-like, the breath coming and going, long and short, looking forward, looking back, extending your arm, carrying your bowl, defecating, urinating. This is a very strange kind of ground, And in some ways, therefore, he's challenging the very notion we have of what it is that can give us some sort of security, some sort of uh, fixed point from which we can perhaps deal with this highly fluctuating world. He's actually encouraging us to completely discard those kinds of fixed positions and embrace the fluidity of life itself. And as we'll see 
uh, as we proceed. He describes the person who's entered into this vision one as one who has entered the stream, sottapanna, who's entered the stream. The stream is the Eightfold Path. Now this stream is utilizing a metaphor of water. The, the person who's somehow broken out of the fixed habitual grasp or grip in which they're somehow trapped in a way, embarks on an engagement with um, the water of life, we might even say. How do you, how, how, how do you make way or make progress or manoeuvre within water? It's through swimming, it's through somehow being more uh, capable of dealing with highly shifting currents and tides and shallows and whirlpools. The word conditioned arising, paticca samuppada, dependent origination, is, all, is really a very clumsy, non-idiomatic way of speaking. Perhaps in more idiomatic language, we might translate paticca samuppada as something simply like life. It's as though he's um, come to experience the flow of life for the first time, to fully experience it without hesitation, without fear, without resistance or reluctance. So that's one aspect of the ground, the fluid conditions of life itself. But he also says, but it's also hard for those who delight and revel in their place to see this ground, the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of all bases, the fading away of craving, desirelessness, stopping, nibbana, nirvana, nirvana. So there's not simply... The ground is not simply, therefore, just a new description of, of how life appears to be. But also, the ground refers to a particular way of relating to the fluid world. And he describes this as nibbana, stopping the fading away of craving. In other words, this ground opens up to us most totally, or life opens itself up to us most totally, most nakedly, when something within us stops. And this, of course, becomes the central point, really, of Buddhist practice, is how do we get to an inner condition, an inner state of awareness in which we're no longer buffeted and pushed and pulled around by grasping, by greed, by fear, by hatred. Nibbana or nirvana means a blowing out. And 
specifically it means to a blowing out of attachment, of grasping, of hatred, of fear and so on. In other words, as we said yesterday afternoon, reaching a condition within yourself in which you are no longer conditioned by greed and hatred, delusion, that you've found a way to be free from these things. And we'll explore in more detail tomorrow exactly how the Buddha understood this process or this practice of achieving such a freedom, which, it's true, is sometimes called the unconditioned or the deathless. But we have to be careful not to reify, in other words, make a thing out of words like deathless or immortality or the unconditioned, but rather to see that these are descriptive of a perspective on life in which certain familiar drives, impulses, habits are no longer determining our behavior. I don't think this means necessarily that greed and hatred, delusion are totally wiped out. I find that actually quite difficult to understand how that could happen. Particularly if we see these things as really the legacy of our evolutionary uh, development. That greed and hatred and delusion seem to be rooted deep down somewhere in the reptilian brain. And I don't think any amount of meditation and mindfulness is somehow going to lobotomize that particular part of our neurology. These things will always be present to some extent. And there is an acknowledgement of that when the Buddha speaks of how there can be a Nibbana with residue and a Nibbana without residue. He's referring here to the fact that as long as he's in a body, as long as anyone is in a body, we will be prone to the demands of the body. And you can't eliminate those things. You have the whole um, thread or train of thought that is found in the passages concerning the Buddha's interactions with the demonic, with Mara, which point very much to his freedom not being a freedom which entails getting rid of greed and hatred and grasping and so on, somehow literally wiping it out, but rather learning to see these things for what they are and no longer being tricked by them. Mara, or the devil, is of course, in some senses, just the, the trickster, the existential trickster, which is built into the system. It's not some psychological process that we can talk ourselves out of. So I feel that this idea of Nibbana, this idea of stopping, is not just about a diminishing of certain drives and forces, but rather more a question of being able to be with these things but not being of them, not being somehow dictated or driven or controlled by them. And that is freedom. 
They may still be around, but they no longer have that same power over us as they may have once had. We may come back to that point as as we continue. But clearly from this passage, that perspective of inner freedom from these powers is likewise the ground from which we are able most uh, directly and perhaps most intimately to engage with the pouring forth of life itself in each moment. So it's not surprising, therefore, that he says, um, at the end of this passage, he says, were I to teach the Dharma and others were not to understand me, that would be tiring and vexing. It would be a real hassle. (laughs) So this is one of the curious episodes in the story of this man, is that he arrives at this insight, at this somewhat radical transformation of his whole perspective on life, And then he says, no one else will get this. And I think we need to understand this in two ways. On the one hand, what he's discovered seems to go against certain deeply seated intuitions that run our lives. That I am a fixed thing, ultimately. That um, there there, there is no, um, how do you say um, to, to accept the fact that there, there really is nothing but the contingent processes of life itself. Part of the whole psychology of, uh, of egoism rests upon an assumption that there's something within me that is not, <coughs> not contingent, not conditional, something that stands apart from the flux of life, something that's somehow essentially alien to what's actually going on within and around me, something that's fixed, something that's constant. To challenge that, to say, in fact, that is A, not the case, B, you can realize that to be not the case by your own observation, and C, that to remain convinced of that sense of who you are is actually blocking you is cutting you off from fully experiencing your life that in many ways goes against what we most deeply feel to be the case but more specifically in the context of his time what he's saying runs against the very current of thought that was predominant in the Upanishads and other streams of Indian thought. So the Buddha struggles. He spends some weeks, it appears, uh, sitting beneath this tree or wandering around, not quite knowing what to do next. But at a certain moment, and the way the texts describe this, we have the appearance suddenly of 
the, a god called Brahma, Sahampati, a particular uh, aspect of a god called Brahma, who pops down from heaven and says to the Buddha, well, actually, there are some people out there with little dust on their eyes who would, in fact, understand what you're on about. Now, I don't understand that as literally the descent of a god who then has a conversation with the Buddha and then pops back up to heaven again, but rather a a sort of mythological way of speaking about the emergence within Siddhartha's own experience of the first promptings of imagination, of love, of creativity, of engagement. Remember that in, uh, in Buddhism, Brahma is the word used in the Brahma Viharas, the, the, the so-called divine abodes or dwellings, which are love, compassion, equanimity, and sympathetic joy. So I think we can see Brahma here as the, as the arising spontaneously within Siddhartha's mind, the first stirrings of compassion, the first movement towards the suffering of others. And that's what prompts him to then seek out some people with little dust on their eyes and the one the people who come to his mind are those he had formerly practiced asceticism with five brahmins from shakya who he knows now to be living in banaras so he goes to banaras and this means he heads back towards his own homeland He goes back to the Ganges and crosses the Ganges to get to the city of Benares, which even in the Buddha's day was located on the northern banks of the Ganges River between the the, the minor rivers of the Varuna and the Asi, which is where we get the word Varunasi or Benares, as it was pronounced then. And this was the holy city of the Brahmins of orthodox religion of his day. But another important point is that Benares was already part of Kosala. Benares was, in other words, in going to Benares, he was actually going home. He was going across the river further west than when he came down south first time and arriving back in his own kingdom, the kingdom of King Persenide. So we can see two things he's doing here. He's tracking down some of his friends, but he's also heading home, returning. He finds his friends, as we probably know, in the deer park at Isipatana, which is nowadays called Saranat, and it's here that he begins to teach. And the first sermon, which I want to look at both today and tomorrow, is a, is a record, and I think a probably rather highly edited record, um, of what he spoke about to these five men. 
I'm sure many of you have, um, have read this text. It's very short. It's only a, a couple of pages in English. But it introduces what are, I feel, the central ideas on the basis of which uh, the rest of his teaching was then built. Now, but today in particular, I want, to, uh, I want to look at the idea that um, opens this discourse, and that is the idea of the middle way. So let me just read out the, the opening passage here. And this is the beginning of, of, of the first sermon. This is what I heard. He was dwelling at Baranasi in the deer park at Isipatana. He addressed the group of five monks. One gone forth does not pursue two dead ends. Which two? Indulgence in sense pleasure, which is low, vulgar, ordinary, uncivilized, and meaningless. And indulgence in self-mortification, which is painful, uncivilized, and meaningless. I have awoken to a middle path, a middle way, which does not lead to either of these two dead ends. It is a path that generates vision and awareness. It leads to tranquility, insight, awakening, and release. It has eight branches. True seeing, thought, speech, action, livelihood, resolve, mindfulness, and concentration. The, that, that is the opening salvo in this text. He then goes on to the four truths, which we'll look at in more detail tomorrow. But the first thing that he, uh, he declares to these people is that he's found a path, a middle path, that avoids to, it's usually translated as extremes, but I don't think that's a very good translation. I think the best translation is dead ends. We'll come back to that. But the important point is that this path is one that leads to tranquility, insight, awakening, release, and it has eight branches or eight aspects, which we're probably, we've heard a number of times now, seeing, thought, speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, concentration. Now, I'm going to argue that this, in fact, is the goal of the Buddha's teaching, the Eightfold Path. I already mentioned just now that when the Buddha describes a person who has, has grasped what he, he's on about in terms of this ground, both the stopping and the opening to conditionality, that such a person enters the stream. And the stream, when he's asked, well, what is this stream?, he always says the stream is the Eightfold Path. The path, I think, is um, what he places primary emphasis upon. And as we'll see in the Four Noble Truths, the fourth truth is the path. It's not nirvana. It's the path. 
we find that both in his very first teaching, this one I've just cited, as well as in what is recorded as his very last teaching, the emphasis is on the Eightfold Path. When he's lying down between two sal trees in Kusinara, about 45 years after he started teaching, a, a person comes to him called Subada. And Subada is a, 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 just a, he's not a Buddhist, he's someone who's heard about the Buddha and he wants to become part of the monastic community. And so the Buddha agrees to give him ordination even though he's dying, the Buddha is dying. And then Subada asks him, well, how am I to recognize what is uh, a teaching that belongs to your dispensation, to what you have taught? And the Buddha replies, wherever you find the Eightfold Path, that you can safely consider to be my Dhamma, my teaching. So we find both as the Alpha and the Omega of the Buddha's teaching career the emphasis on the Eightfold Path. Now the Buddha also speaks of the Eightfold Path more metaphorically. And um, I'd like to look at a passage here which is uh, again in the, in the Sanyutta Nikaya, the, the collection of what are called connected discourses. And here he describes this path um, by means of an analogy. And I'll read the whole thing out. Suppose, monks, a man wandering through a forest would see an ancient path, an ancient road travelled upon by people in the past. He would follow it and would see an ancient city an ancient capital that had been inhabited by people in the past, with parks, groves, ponds and ramparts, a delightful place. Then the man would inform the king or a royal minister and say, Sire, know that while wandering through the forest I saw an ancient path, an ancient road. I followed it and saw an ancient city, an ancient capital, etc., etc., Renovate that city, sire. Then the king or the royal minister would renovate the city. And sometime later that city would become successful and prosperous, well populated, filled with people, attained to growth and expansion. So too, monks, I saw the ancient path, the ancient road, travelled by the Buddhas of the past. And what is that ancient path, that ancient road, it is just this noble eightfold path. So, this passage um, points to a number of things. First of all, it points to the fact that the Buddha saw as the goal of the, eight, of the eightfold path, um, or the goal of the path, he saw a city. For some of us, we might already be thinking city of God, Augustine. But what is striking is that he doesn't describe this path as leading to some sort of transcendent liberation or nirvana or uh, transcendence of the world. 
but rather he sees his path as leading to a city, a city that he would like to renovate, would like to restore to its former glory. And to do so, he will draw upon the help of the royal minister and the king so that this city will become successful and prosperous, well-populated, filled with people, attained to growth and expansion. Now, this looks very much like um, a call for a civilization. It looks very much as though the Eightfold Path is in many ways the template of a culture. And if you think of it, the way we see things, think about things, speak, act, work, make effort, pay attention, focus. These are like the eight um, pillars, perhaps, of what upon which such a culture, such a civilization might be built. So the Buddha's vision, at least as it's articulated very clearly here, is towards creating a civilization on earth, one that existed perhaps in the past but has now been lost. So in other words, he saw himself as a civilizer, trying to create a city, a city of contingency perhaps, rather than a city of God. Now let's just step back from that a little bit and ask ourselves about the role of metaphor in teaching. If you say something like this, I discovered an ancient path in the forest one day and it led to the ruins of the ancient city, then that must have been something that his listeners would have been familiar with. In other words, you can't draw upon a metaphor without it having some immediate resonance with um, those who are listening to you. I remember a long time ago, a friend of mine, when we were translating a Tibetan text, um, we were trying to find the right way to explain how the syllables in some mantras were pronounced. And my friend suggested, well, actually, it's just like French Canadians pronounce the word thumb. Now, that's not very useful, unless you happen to be a French Canadian. It's, it's not a good metaphor. It may be correct, but it requires that the listener knows how the French Canadians pronounce the word thumb. So we abandoned that one. But the point I'm making is that to... to um, to use such a metaphor of an ancient path in an ancient city come across in a forest, people must have known about such things or maybe even experienced them for themselves. Otherwise, the meta metaphor really has no point. Now, this gives rise to a problem, an archaeological problem. Where the Buddha was teaching was largely, um, in the, well, it's entirely in the Gangetic Basin. Now, there were no ancient cities ruined in the Gangetic Basin uh, for a number of reasons. One, because of it being an, an alluvial plain, there was no stone 
they had lost the technology of um, fired brick. In other words, everything that would have been built as a village or a town or whatever would have just returned back into the mud. So how then would these people ever have had the experience of a ruined city? I mean, it sounds terribly like Indiana Jones in the South America somewhere stumbling across some Mayan ruin. But in the Gangetic Basin at the Buddha's time, there were no such things. So what purpose would this metaphor have had? Well, where would there have been ruined cities at the Buddha's time? Does anyone know? Well done. The Indus Valley Civilization. And where is the Indus Valley Civilization? In Pakistan. In other words, right next to Taxila. <laughs> there, would have, there still are enormous ruins of places like Mohendaro, Harappa, right along the whole Indus Valley River system. And these would have been um, in ruins at the Buddha's time. And they must have been very impressive because they were built out of materials that nobody at that time knew how to make. Brick, fired brick. They were enormously impressive. Anyone who had gone to that part of India, although at the time it was part of the Persian Empire, would have been very impressed and overwhelmed perhaps by the remains of this civilization, this vast civilization. So again, it points to two things. It points to either the Buddha being aware of these things or, as I think quite possible, he may have seen them himself. And again, try to put yourself back into, in, try to imagine yourself back in 500 BC in this part of the world. The educated noble class would have gone primarily to Taxila, which was the last city of the Persian Empire, for their training, their education. It stood in many ways for civilization. And yet they would also have stumbled across, had they walked along the Indus Valley, all of these ruins of this great civilization which was now in, abandoned in disrepair. We still don't know quite why the Indus Valley civilization collapsed. It might have been because of shifting water courses or something. It might have been because of war. It could have been the Aryan invasions. It's still an open question. But it's suggestive, perhaps, that the Buddha had seen these things, or at least knew about them. It also suggests, of course, that his listeners would have known about them, even if they hadn't seen them for themselves. Otherwise, the metaphor would have no power. So we can imagine the Buddha in a time where there is a sense that although a new kind of culture and society cities are begin to, beginning to emerge, they were clearly overshadowed by an awareness of what had been in the past. 
And so I take this metaphor, this analogy here, not just as a, a rather, just an ordinary kind of figure of speech, but actually as perhaps reflecting an actual awareness of a lost civilization that had previously existed in this part of the world. And so when the Buddha speaks of um, <clears throat> uh, creating an, an uh, a civilization, he perhaps is echoing there the longing for the sort of world that he had imagined or others had imagined as having existed in the past close to where they all lived. Now another indication of this is found when he describes these two dead ends. He says, indulgence in sense pleasure and indulgence in self-mortification. He describes both of them as being gamma in Pali, which is usually translated as something like ignoble. But actually the word gamma means village. The Buddha seems to be pointing to, um, uh, and pointing in a rather derogatory way, to... um, a kind of rural uh, culture uh, in which little um, learning or education or higher values were celebrated. And he speaks of his middle path as one that avoids things that he dismissively calls rustic. Remember in um, English when we use the word pagan, the word pagan uh, literally means of the village. So it's a similar sense. You have the idea that, uh, that Siddhartha Gautama and, and I imagine, of course, his peers, his friends, were somehow aspiring to a new kind of culture, a new kind of civilization. They were moving away from the simple round of sustenance agriculture, aspiring to something, something more than that. But the idea of it being a civilizing process, I think, is very much of the essence. Now, there are some other passages um, which we find through the texts in which um, he also speaks of his middle way. And I'd like to look at a couple of those. Now, this is a very strange one. I stumbled across this in the Udana, which is an early collection of short passages. And the Buddha says, Those who hold training as the essence, or who hold virtue and vow, pure livelihood, celibacy, and service as the essence, this is one dead end. And those with such theories and such views as there is no fault in sensual indulgence, this is one dead end. But both these dead ends cause the cemeteries to grow. And the cemeteries cause wrong views to grow. Now when I read this out to Buddhists, they get a little bit itchy. Because it seems very much as though he's rejecting 
virtue and vow, pure livelihood, celibacy and service, which seem surely to be kind of what he was about. Why does he present that as an extreme or a dead end? Why does he contrast it with um, uh, indulgence in sensuality? You have, at least on the basis of this passage, a sense that the Buddha was trying to find a middle way, not just between self-mortification and sensory indulgence, but a middle way between um, uh, sensory indulgence on the one hand and religious indulgence on the other. I don't think that he literally meant that one should have no virtue and no vows and livelihood and all those things. But I think he was pointing to how even that idea of what is good and true can also become a trap, that you can become a holier-than-thou, self-righteous, religious bigot, just as you can become a uh, carefree, indulgent uh, materialist. But the middle way is a tricky business. It seems that any kind of uh, position you take, however good and noble and religious and spiritual it might appear, can likewise become a dead end, can become a trap. The reason I like the word dead end um, is because it points to the fact that uh, the middle path, the middle way that avoids these dead ends, is a living thing. It takes you somewhere. It's a movement. It's a motion. It's a trajectory. It's heading somewhere. Whereas a dead end is somewhere where you get stuck. The word in Pali for dead end, is anta. Anta means literally end, or terminus. It also means limit or border. Something that's enclosed. So what the Buddha's saying is that the path he's presenting is one that doesn't lead you to a brick wall. It doesn't come up against an insuperable obstacle. Whereas so much of what we do in life, whether it be of an overtly worldly nature or it be of an overtly religious nature, has the tendency to become stuck in a pattern of repetition. In other words, you might expend a lot of energy in these things, but existentially, in, in other words, in terms of how you really feel within yourself, your actual core experience, you're not really getting anywhere. You're just reiterating the same thing again and again and again. And so meditation can become a dead end. You just, you might have had this experience. It starts out, perhaps, as a very liberating, very... Um, invigorating, mind-opening practice. And after a while, you find that it's not like that so much anymore. It's just something you're doing out of habit, perhaps, or perhaps because you feel you should be doing it. 
or you feel guilty if you don't do it. In other words, it's possible to lose touch with the sources of your own inspiration and your own vision and get caught in a kind of round of repetitive behavior, which, of course, is technically called sangsara. You just go round and round and round like a hamster on a wheel. And the Buddha seems to be quite clear that pretty much anything human beings can do can become a dead end. So the challenge of the, of the middle path is, and I think the language avoiding extremes is not very helpful here. A middle path is, if, you, if you're practicing this middle path, this centered path, you could also translate it like, like that, you're very alert to how you can get caught in a dead end or how you can make what was once a path into a dead end and you can get stuck. The Buddha, when he talks to Mara, uh, who's the personification of the devil in Buddhism, he also calls Mara the antaka, same word, anta, end, ka is a suffix that makes it into the person who, the one who imposes ends, the one who creates dead ends. Now Mara is identified with, with greed, with hatred, with confusion, but Mara is also identified with death. So the problem of dead ends is that they are almost, not literally, but they are a kind of inner death. Nothing is living anymore. Which points very much to how the Buddha saw the middle path as a way to life. And this is not common language in, in Buddhism, this emphasis on life. But for me, the Buddha, especially in contrast to that, you know, his, his, his counterpart, his shadowy counterpart, Mara, is in fact a metaphor for living a full life. The Eightfold Path, likewise, is about living one's life to the fullness of one's capacities in all areas of one's life. And not just individually, as a, as a solitary person, but also communally. When we talk about right speech, right action, right livelihood, we're not talking just about things you do on your own. We're talking about our interactions with society, with the world. And when we think of the Eightfold Path as leading to a civilization, again, we're engaged in a communal, social vision, not just a personal spiritual quest. There's another image that the Buddha uses, again referring to the, um, <clears throat> the Eightfold Path. And this is when he talks about what is often translated as spiritual friendship. In other words, the role of the teacher. The word the Buddha uses is kalayana mita. Uh, kalayana doesn't really mean spiritual. It actually just means good. 
A good friend. What is a good friend? Now, the Buddha only speaks explicitly about the good friend in two passages uh, in the whole canon. It's not something that he talks a great deal about. Um, One of the passages is often quoted by Western Buddhists where Ananda comes to the Buddha and says, "But, but this good friendship, it seems to me that this is half of the spiritual life or half of the brahmacharya, the, 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 yeah, the spiritual life. And the Buddha says, no, no, Ananda. It's not half the spiritual life. It's the whole of the spiritual life. Now, having read that passage, one might have thought that the Buddha would go on and say something about good friendship. But he doesn't. Totally absent. Look it up in the... It's not mentioned once in the Majjhima Nikaya the middle-length sayings. And again, I think it's an example that, of how the Buddha taught, in inverted commas, uh, good friendship, not by saying what it was or defining it or giving all sorts of uh, instructions about it, but through living it. His whole life was an embodiment of that principle of friendship. Now often, if you're familiar with the passage I just cited, that's probably as much as you know of it. That's the bit that's usually quoted. And usually it's seen as a kind of injunction to form nice spiritual communities or something. But the Buddha goes on and explains, well, but, 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 but what does it, why is a good, what makes a good friend? And in both the instances where he talks about it, he says the same thing. A good friend is a person who brings you into the Eightfold Path. That's what constitutes the uh, nature of that friendship. Someone or a group of people who help you find your way into true vision, thinking, Speaking, acting. And in, an, in the other passage where he speaks of good friendship, he says the good friend is like the sun, S-U-N, le soleil. The good friend is like the dawning of the sun because it's only in the dawn of the sun that you're able to see the Eightfold Path. Now you may have remembered that when I cited a passage where the Buddha talks of himself and he says that he is, the, he is of the lineage of the sun. That was his family notion, his family identity. But it seems that in some ways he remained true to this metaphor of a kind of solar culture. Now the sun, of course is that which allows life to take place on earth. It's that which provides heat and nourishment, warmth and so on. And the Buddha, I think, is in a way taking the idea of that solar cult to which he may have belonged and again giving it a new meaning. So in other words, he sees his eightfold path 
as the dawning of a new day. And the person who, or the people who uh, make that way open to you are, as it were, those who give you the capacity to see the way forward, to see the way towards this ancient city in the forest. So when we look at this idea of the Eightfold Path, we find that it, um, it, it picks up all sorts of um, resonances, all sorts of analogies. And here's another one. This is the idea of the middle way um, as applied to speech. This is in the Majjhima Nikaya 139. The Buddha's speaking. He says, one should know what it is to extol and what it is to disparage or to praise and to blame. And knowing both, one should neither extol nor disparage but should only teach the Dhamma. One should know how to define pleasure and knowing that one should pursue pleasure within oneself. One should not utter covert speech, in other words, whispering behind people's backs. And one should not utter overt, sharp speech, in other words, abusive language. One should speak unhurriedly, not hurriedly. One should not insist on local language, but one should not override normal usage. This is the summary of the exposition of non-conflict. So there's something very precise here, something very uh, sensitized to how we communicate with one another. And certainly each time I read this, I can see it is a kind of rule of thumb, really. And I can see where I tend to, to veer from this middle way. I tend to have a rather critical tongue. So I need to be aware of that. I don't think it means that one should never criticize on anything. But as he says, one should know what it is to praise and what it is to blame and be very conscious of how we tend to veer off in those directions and become somehow enamored of extolling things and putting other things down. So how do we hold a middle way there in which we neither extol nor disparage but what he says, speak the Dhamma. In other words, somehow remain to what is true and also, of course, what is helpful, what actually is going to... Um, uh, encourage or to facilitate a way of living that's not dictated by our greeds and our aversions but rather seeks to respond to the suffering in a way that we may be able to find out of that suffering not just for ourselves but also for our interlocutor and by implication for the whole of humankind. So we find this idea of, uh, of the middle way applied in all instances. We'll find it also, and I may come to this later, 
when the, when the Buddha gets rather more philosophical and he talks of a middle way between being and non-being. The Buddha doesn't want to get drawn into uh, what he considers philosophical dead ends, i.e. insisting that ultimately there is being or insisting that ultimately there is nothing. He tries to find a middle path between these two conceptual, what he considers, dead ends. So the idea of the middle way is not just a kind of um, rule of thumb for good Buddhists, but it's actually a challenge to find that balance in all aspects of our life, moment to moment. And each of us, I think, has to find and carve out that way uh, within our own specific experience. And so when we're sitting here, when we're walking, when we're eating, it too can be a reflection. To what extent do I keep slipping from this balanced position into some kind of indulgence, either a, a worldly indulgence or a spiritual indulgence? And do I start going round and round and round and round without actually making any traction in life itself? I get stuck. So the idea of freedom is not just about liberating oneself through some visionary experience of reality, but actually it's about, in each moment, noticing how we get unfree or blocked or trapped within repetitive cycles of thought, behavior, opinion, no matter what the subject of those thoughts or opinions might be. So I'll um, stop here, um, having had a look at the middle way, and then tomorrow we'll go through the rest of this discourse um, which, as I mentioned, is focused upon the four. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.